Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that your word always remains true. That this culture will ebb and flow with whatever is trending, whatever is popular, whatever hasn't been canceled yet. But Lord, your, your word remains true. It transcends everything that is happening in our culture, everything that is happening in this world. And it speaks directly to us. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't beat around the bush. It speaks directly to us. Because it is your word directed to us. Lord, I pray that we would allow ourselves, open ourselves up to being changed by it. Letting the power of your spirit through your word change one more thing about us that will be a little bit different when we leave this place today than when we came in. We thank you for how you are always with us, how you are always growing us and transforming us and revealing more of who you are to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several events in American history that, while having accidental origins, widely changed American culture and history forever, and, and in some cases, the, the, the history of the world. Now, here are just a couple, as documented by Reader's Digest. A lot of us know the generalities of the famous story about how penicillin was discovered, that it was discovered by accident. Here are the details. In 1928, a Scottish physician named Alexander Fleming was rushing from his laboratory to get to his vacation, that he accidentally left a stash of petri dishes in the sink still containing the bacteria Staphylococcus, which we all know is a nasty bacteria that leads to all kinds of illnesses. You think you make mistakes on your way out the door uh, to your vacation. Upon his return from his two-week vacation, Fleming noticed one of the petri dishes had developed mold on it, which secreted a weird mold juice, which seemed to kill the bacteria it touched. Fleming published his findings, but no one noticed and no one cared. If it weren't for another accidental discovery, this medicine would have been lost to history. Years later, an Australian pathologist named Howard Walter Florey inadvertently found Fleming's paper while flipping through old medical journals, did his own series of experiments based on that paper, and penicillin was recreated, being the world's first antibiotic. I had no clue about this other accidental historical event, though. In 1946, Italian-American film director Frank Capra had directed a movie that was a complete failure. The movie failed to even earn back the $2.3 budget that was spent on producing it, and in fact, it was the driving force in putting its production company, Liberty Films, out of business. Capra was later quoted as saying that Liberty Films' bankruptcy, driven by this particular film, was, quote, fatal to my professional career. When Liberty Films went out of business, no one thought about or cared about the copyright to that financially disastrous film, which lapsed in 1974. 
When television stations discovered that this certain film had no copyright at that point, and they didn't have to risk anything by having to pay royalties to broadcast the film on, tele on television, they did so, airing the film year after year for completely free. While the copyright has been locked up again since the 1990s, that total and complete failure of a film named It's a Wonderful Life remains a part of American Christmas culture that we can't possibly think of going without. In the biblical account we'll be looking at this morning, what seems like an accidental life situation and an accidental encounter will end up being a crucial and powerful experience to display Jesus' power and a crucial theological truth about God, who he is, and his plan for humanity and us as individuals. Last week, we, looked, we wrapped up Jesus' conversation in the temple, first with the antagonistic Pharisees, and then with the crowd who turned from curious and interested in what Jesus was saying to so oppositional that they wanted to kill Jesus in cold blood right then and there for him declaring a statement that he was God. If you remember, and if you can believe it, starting from John 7.37, all the way up through the last verse we covered last week, John 8, 59, all took place on the same day, if you can believe it. It all took place on the same day, the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I actually went back and looked this up. We spent about five months in the verses from John 7, 37 through 8, 59. The last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles was vitally important to our understanding of everything that transpired during that passage, and it also connects to our understanding of the passage we're starting today. If you remember, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, but especially to an even greater extent, that torches were lit up all throughout Jerusalem, and giant menorahs were set up and lit in the temple complex. It was a fantastic sight. Who still has their Christmas lights up? Okay, no judgment. Mine are up all year round. They're just now Valentine's lights. <laughs> You'll remember when we talked about this that to a lesser degree, the light shows and displays during the Christmas season are kind of the feeling one would get experiencing the entire city of Jerusalem lit up for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was quite the breathtaking scene. It was during this last and greatest day of the festival week, surrounded by an entire city filled with countless torches and giant menorahs in the temple complex, that we covered John 8:12, when Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world. Think of the poignancy of that statement as he was surrounded by all that fire and light. Even as bright as Jerusalem was lit up at that point, it still couldn't hold a candle, pun intended, to the light that only Jesus could emanate in the midst of this pitch black world of sin and evil. Jesus made the statement that he was the light of the world in John 8:12. Now, in our passage this morning, as one biblical scholar points out, Jesus backs up that powerful statement on the Sabbath following the last and greatest day 
of that Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus will bring physical light and sight to a man who knew nothing but physical darkness and blindness. In short, this event, as well as the fallout from it, should still be connected symbolically to the light of that feast as it's the next recorded event in the Gospel of John following that feast. As he often did, Jesus will take the general meaning of him as the light of the world and make it a blatant and visible reality in an individual's life. Much like he does with and in the lives of every single one of us here today or watching online later. On a Sabbath day, either immediately following or not too long after the Feast of Tabernacles, we start out our account this morning. So, if you brought your Bible, will you please turn to John chapter 9? I know the bulletin says we'll go through verse 12, but we're only going to make it through verse 5 today, and we'll pick up the other half next week. Uh, look up John chapter 9 in your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 9 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone we're going to start in verse 1 here as he passed by he meaning Jesus he saw a man blind from birth this certain man had been blind ever since he was born as God's word tells us here all he had ever known was darkness as noted by one biblical scholar the fact that John includes this the way he did is meant to show the complete hopelessness of this man's situation. There was nothing he nor any human being could do to help him or make his situation better. This man had lived his entire life in this way. When he was a kid, he didn't know what his parents looked like or what his siblings looked like. He couldn't play catch or other games with the neighborhood kids. He'd never seen the waves of the Sea of Galilee lapping onto the shore or what a grove of olive trees looked like or a painted pink-hued sunset. When he grew up, he could only make a living by begging and relying only on others' charity. Because of this, there's a good chance that he was unable to get married since he most likely would not have been able to afford any sort of bride price. Nowadays, there are opportunities for those with either poor or no eyesight to be able to have lives filled with lots of joyful experiences. But this man really didn't have any and didn't really have anything. As noted by one biblical scholar, this whole encounter between Jesus and this man is not even precipitated by Jesus or the man. We'll find out that it's precipitated by Jesus' disciples. And when they precipitate it, it's not a positive initiative experience. In fact, Jesus' disciples use this man not to initiate mercy or charity, but to use him as the illustration for a theological question in connection with his hopeless situation. We read in verse 2, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Imagine hearing yourself being used as a question to know whether your hopeless situation was your fault or your parents' fault. 
There's not much empathy shown or heard in the thought process of Jesus' disciples right now. It's like passing by someone today with a cardboard sign and wondering aloud, I wonder whose fault it is that this person is in this situation without any thought to doing anything to actually help them. Or even worse, thinking out loud, this person must be on drugs and that's why they're in this situation. How many times are we guilty of thought processes today along the same lines as how the disciples came across to this man. These thoughts, voiced or not voiced, dehumanize someone in their situation, the complete opposite of how Jesus sees that person. You might think, well, I don't really know what to do to help someone I see like that. Well, here's an idea. One idea I heard a few years back that I think is a great idea, especially for those fellow human beings we see on the side of the road while we're driving and stopped at a light, is to keep at least one large Ziploc bag in the car filled with snacks, toiletry items, a couple of pairs of socks, a New Testament, and a gospel track. As the person walks by, you can just simply give them the bag and tell them you'll pray for them. If you regularly walk down the street in an area where you see at least one person on the street in need, you can plan on having at least one of these bags in the bag that you usually carry. We don't know their life situation, and guess what? We don't need to know their life situation in order to help them in a tangible way with the love and truth of Jesus. The disciples in this morning's passage, however, are more focused on the blind man's life situation and wanting to know the why as to why he was suffering so much. See, according to biblical scholarship, all the disciples had been taught their whole life by rabbis and the Pharisees and other religious leaders was that people's suffering could be traced back to a specific sin or a perpetual sinful life, either by the person suffering or their parents. In a world and society based on salvation through works and how well you followed the Jewish law, a human manipulation of what God never intended with the place of the law in the lives of his people, this teaching makes complete sense. If you lived a life following the law, the understanding was that you would be blessed. And if you lived a life disobeying the law, the understanding was that you would suffer for it. And so if you lived a life of suffering, the automatic implication was that either you or your parents had sinned and grievously broken the law. But this is what precipitated the disciples' question. This is what they wrestled with. This man in particular was born blind which posed a theological problem in their minds. The teaching they knew was that it was the fault of that person or their parents. But how could it be this particular man's fault if he was born blind? Surely a baby in his mother's womb couldn't sin so grievously as to warrant God cursing him with blindness. So, in the disciples' minds, it must be his parents' fault, right? Theologically, and in reality, 
it's not that simple and for very good reason. Jesus responds with this, verse 3. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, as noted by one biblical scholar, this isn't Jesus contradicting the doctrine of humanity's original sin. That is, as seen in the book of Romans especially, that ever since Adam sinned, every human being inherited our sinful state from the moment of conception, and therefore every human being needs Jesus to be a savior from that, from that sin. What this does mean is that Jesus is refuting the belief that it was some specific sin by someone that made it so this man was blind from birth. Instead, everything, including this man's disability, was so because of God's sovereignty and his purposes and his plan. In this man's case, he had been born blind, suffered through his blindness as a child, and was having to rely on others' charity all the way up to the very moment for a reason. Every tear, every feeling of inferiority, all the heartache led up to this very moment. The very moment when Jesus would pass by and be directed to him. This man would be the beneficiary of what Jesus would do shortly. But ultimately, all of it was to display the works of God in his life and bring God glory. Sometimes a person's disability is viewed as a negative thing. But if we truly believe in the sovereignty and goodness of God, what does that mean? It means a disability is a mighty force for God's purposes and messages. When you line up Paul's letters with what is recorded for us in the book of Acts about his missionary travels, what you'll find is that at one point he was stoned by his fellow Jewish people almost to the point of death. In fact, they thought their job was done as it appeared in every way that Paul was dead. But Paul wasn't dead. At the same time, however, Paul was so badly beaten by literally having rocks hurled at every part of his body that he could barely pick himself up and make his way to shelter and safety. Knowing from other New Testament letters Paul had written, his eyesight began to fail him after that nightmarish experience. Medically, what could very well have happened was a case of optical inflammation. There's a much bigger Latin scientific word than that, but it's optical inflammation that over time leads to blindness. This inflammation is caused by blunt force trauma to the eyes, like, say, rocks being thrown at them repeatedly. This physical case of trauma and subsequent loss of eyesight has led many Bible scholars to believe that that was the thorn in his side that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12. In that disability, Paul cried out to the Lord to remove that physical burden. He writes, "Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, 
For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. You can see the heart's cry, the honest heart's cry in these verses. This is how the Lord responds to Paul in his disability and his agony. And he has said to me, very simple words, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is perfected in your weakness. Physical and mental disabilities, no matter what they are or how long you've had them, are not a source for belittlement or inferiority or humiliation. They're not a mistake, and you're not a mistake. You have been created by God to be beautiful, and he created and allowed you to be the way you are for a powerful reason. He has allowed what he has allowed to happen to you to display his works and to bring him glory. You are the way you are so that God can use you in a brilliant and powerful way that he has decided just for you. Ultimately, he has created you and allowed certain conditions to happen in your life to use to bring the message of hope found in Jesus and Jesus alone and to bring glory to himself. Your physical or mental condition will bring tears and heartache because we live in a broken and fallen world. But in the most painful of times, like God told Paul in his physical condition, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in human weakness. You will be used by him in only a way that he can use you to be a mighty force for his kingdom and displaying his strength. He has gifts he has given to you regardless of a physical or mental condition. And he will be glorified because of a physical or mental condition. Someday Jesus is coming back for his followers. There, there is coming a day, seems like it'll be soon, when his first Thessalonians 4 says, Jesus will burst out of heaven with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet blast of God. He will call up all those who have died before that point and had put their faith in Jesus before their death then those who are still alive at that point will also be called up. As 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, we will all be given changed, perfected, and glorified bodies, free from sickness, free from limitations, and free from death. Bodies fit for heaven. Paul writes in Romans 8 that this present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that God is preparing for all of us who have repented of our sin and taken Jesus as the Savior from that sin and the King over the rest of our lives. 
your life now, regardless of what has happened to your physical body or mental condition, is a glowing testimony to the power and the hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to say in verses 4 through 5, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. At this point, Jesus is including the disciples who brought up this question in his answer. When he starts these verses off with, we. As noted by one biblical scholar, no one worked at night due to the lack of light except for night watchmen and shepherds. In addition, what Jesus meant by comparing day and night was that this little amount of time he and his disciples had left together was the day before the imminent darkness of his death came very shortly after this. In fact, when you line up everything in, the gospel, uh, in this Gospel of John, along with the other three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're only talking about six to seven months from that death by crucifixion at this point. Yet, even though the darkness of Jesus' death was coming, that could not forever quench the fire of him as the light of the world. And it's because of the darkness of Jesus' death that the brilliance of the light of his resurrection and continued taking of that message, of that resurrection, to the corners of the earth shines so overwhelmingly brightly. Both were necessary. Both the darkness of Jesus' death as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and the light of his resurrection for our eternal life were required for our salvation and hope found only in Jesus. By Jesus including his disciples in the work that God the Father had for him to do, he was expanding that work to his disciples. And by extension, all who would follow him as disciples in the thousands of years after that, including us today. Jesus knew his death was coming. He knew his resurrection from that death was coming. And he knew his ascension back to heaven was coming. Yet his work from God the Father would continue. And it would continue through his disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and every single disciple after that. We have work that, the, that God the Father has given that Jesus has commissioned and the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do. Some of that includes ministering to the physical and spiritual needs of those who are in need of such provision, regardless of the cause of their situation. We act as Jesus' hands and feet to those who are in need and leave the outcome of that up to the one who called us to be his hands and feet. Some of it includes including everyone, regardless of past, background, current struggles with sin, or physical or mental limitation in the work of God's kingdom. His plan includes everyone he's called to put their faith in Jesus, and so too must our plan in serving him. Every disciple of Jesus has a place in his kingdom, his purpose, 
his plan, and his mission to the world. All of it includes sharing the truth of the message of the hope of Jesus and salvation based on his death and resurrection leading to our repentance of sin. And all of it includes sharing that truth in love. The two must always be present in everything we do. Love without the truth of God's word and his gospel, which includes repentance of all that God calls sin, is a false gospel. And what marks progressive Christianity so popular today? Communicating the truth of God's word and his gospel without love is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, obnoxious and destructive. Jesus emulated both love towards this man and the truth of who God really is in dismantling wrong theology when it comes to how God views everyone and therefore how we are to view everyone. We're going to be looking more at how Jesus does the work of God the Father in love towards this particular man next week. God knows what you're going through, and God has a powerful purpose for it, both in his work and in bringing glory to himself. There will be a day when Jesus will return for us and give us bodies free from physical and mental limitation, illness, pain, heartache, and death, bodies fit to spend eternity with him. And in the meantime, Jesus has work for us to do, every single one of us, to build his kingdom and to share the message of his love, his truth, and his salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. It's a simple passage, but it's one that we all must be reminded of. It's, all, it's one that we may struggle with, we may wrestle with but it's one that is your truth nonetheless. I pray that if there's any hang-up in being your hands and feet to anyone, that we would let that go, that we would surrender that up to your Holy Spirit, and that you would move in us to do the work that you have for us to do. I pray that if we have a physical or mental limitation or condition, I pray that we would see it as a mighty force for your kingdom that you created us, you allowed certain things to happen in our lives for your purposes, your plan, and your glory. And I pray that all of us will use the lives you have given to us, the situations and circumstances that you have put us in to be that shining light, that brilliant testimony of who you are, your grace, your mercy, your love, your truth to this hurting, dark, and searching world. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.